Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to episode 88 of the Health Unchained podcast. The blockchain and healthcare community continues to grow as more healthcare professionals realize the potential for disruption in their line of work. On today's episode, I speak with Eberhard Scheuer, the founder and president of the DHealth Network. The DHealth Network was brought to my attention by Gregory Seif, the head developer of the NEM blockchain project and blockchain lead at DHealth. I spoke to Gregory on episode 84, so you should check out that episode if you haven't heard it already, especially if you want to get a sense of how an experienced developer thinks about this space. The DHealth network is based in Zug, Switzerland, also known as Crypto Valley, where crypto-based businesses like cryptocurrency exchange Shapeshift and many others benefit from the business-friendly policies in Switzerland, including low corporate taxes. Diverse communities are important for the development and implementation of healthcare dApps across different regions of the world. Certain country and state jurisdictions may give companies a unique advantage over competing platforms, such as the case in Switzerland. I really enjoyed speaking with Eberhard, who holds a PhD in psychology and has a data-driven approach to solving problems. DHealth has an upcoming IDO, which is an initial decentralized exchange offering on the Occam Razor Launchpad under the Cardano ecosystem. I hope you all enjoy this episode, and don't forget to subscribe to Health Unchained on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach out to the Health Unchained Telegram community by going to t.me slash healthunchained. And remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Eberhard Scheuer. He is the founder and president of the DHealth Foundation. And we'll be talking about some of the work that he's been doing using blockchain in the healthcare field. Uh, and there's been some recent announcements I want to get into, Eberhard, regarding the organ transplant uh, initiative that you recently announced and many other things. So looking forward to speaking with you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So I guess to get started, can you give the audience a background about yourself? I know your career so far and what you've done. Well, actually, I'm a psychologist by training. I was trained as a clinical psychologist, but I mainly worked uh, in the research environment. I studied at UMass Amherst and also at the University of Tübingen in Germany. And when I returned uh, from the U.S., I decided to go to Switzerland and uh, take up a postdoc position at the University Hospital there. And after some Doing some research, I basically became head of the e-health activities of the University Hospital in Zurich. And that's also why very early on I was involved in digital health and at some point got uh, interested in blockchain technology. 
Interesting. So it sounds like you were interested in healthcare from the psychiatry, psychology perspective. Was that something that you found to be of interest early on? Like, how did you get into the healthcare field? Well, actually, like many, many other people, after uh, finishing school, I didn't really know uh, which direction to go. And uh, somebody recommended psychology to me because I was always good in math. And uh, psychology, uh, funny enough, if you do research, it's a lot of number crunching. And so it really fit my interest in statistics. And also the other interest that I'm having is uh human behavior. I mean, that's so fascinating to see how humans interact and behave and trying to explain that, that really early on attracted me, but that doesn't really necessarily mean that you have to end up in healthcare. And that was a little bit more by accident because I studied at UMass in Amherst, which is very close to Boston, as you know, and um, then did a study for my PhD thesis on coping with the stress of coronary artery bypass surgery. And I did that at the UMass Medical School in Worcester. And so early on, the intersection of behavior, physiological reactions in your body. uh, So that fascinated me early on. And somehow with the stress study and so on, I was also then recruited uh, um, by the University Hospital in Zurich, uh, where I did the postdoc. And so more and more, I got uh, dragged into the whole healthcare system. I also did clinical work apart from the research work. And really, the interaction with patients uh, when they come to the hospital, it's about life and death very often. Uh, That really shapes your, your thinking quite a lot. You know, that's interesting. I don't often hear that mathematics is associated with psychology. Um, So I think that's more of like a social science in a way. It's a little bit of an art, but I see your point, I guess, in the way that you described it. I mean, it depends how you apply it. I mean, first of all, uh, it's an empirical science. I mean, especially if you go to the US or Great Britain, it's very empirical uh, data that you're using to draw your conclusions, whereas the more psychoanalytic, contemplative uh, approach to psychology is more uh, a different route. So I can see that, uh, especially in Europe, uh, most people uh, don't associate psychology so much with uh, statistics and numbers, but in the end, uh, all what you're using uh, in therapy should if it's good therapy, uh, should be based on evidence. And so for evidence, you need data. So that's that's, fair. that has to come somewhere from, and that's why you do research and so on. Fair enough. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, and I often think about how consumer behavior interacts with psychology so much, and especially now with all these apps and different wearables, there's a lot of gamification involved with with developing and designing these apps and all of that, much of that has to do with the data we've collected statistically on how humans behave and psychology and all that. So very interesting. So how did you first hear about blockchain technology? So let's, let's get into that. And then we can talk about the DHealth Foundation the vision for that. I think that'd be interesting. I, before uh, we had scheduled the call, I was thinking about uh, when was really the first time I heard about blockchain 
And really, I don't know the exact date, but it was around 2014 when there was a science day at the ETH, which is one of the universities here in Zurich, actually one of the top 10 worldwide. And they were having a science day. And one of the lectures was on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So uh, my youngest son said, I want to go there. Uh, so since he was nine or ten, nine at that time, uh, I went with him there uh, and he was totally bored. Although recently he urged me to uh, buy him Dogecoin, but I was totally fascinated by the whole concept of decentralization, independent of central banks, uh, money transfer. And at that time, since I'm not a technician, I was looking desperately for someone who could help setting up a mining, a Bitcoin miner for me. Um, and uh, that was really the, the time when I got interested in that. Then 2016, very early, a friend who I met many years ago in the U.S. when we were still young and very slender, uh, uh, but now we are old and fat. And, uh, so anyway, he was a very old friend of mine from Switzerland, and he called me, are you still in digital health? I said, yes. Uh, we have to do something in blockchain and healthcare because he was one of the early activists in the Crypto Valley doing the conferences there and uh, marketing. Uh, his name was Reto Guardian. Some of the people in blockchain might know him. So he called me and then ever since uh, I was thinking, yeah, this kind of technology really, uh, if you look at it, can solve a lot of problems in healthcare. And so that... That's why I started, because I was always uh, interested in new technology, how that can help to uh, improve patient care. Uh, at that time, I was uh, heavily involved in consulting big companies uh, in the telecom area around digital health. And so we were thinking how we can actually apply blockchain in healthcare. And basically, it ended up in 2017 that we founded the uh, eHealth Foundation. At that time, it was called HIT or HIT Foundation. Uh, and uh, we did a name change just this year. And that, that's basically the start of what we're doing in healthcare and blockchain. What was the name of your partner? I missed that. Reto Guardian. Rate of Guardian. Okay, fantastic. I'm sure that people can find them online if they're interested. So that's pretty interesting. So when you first started the HIT Foundation, then became DHealth, uh, what was the use case or the goal? Was it very high level? Was it like deep into a specific use case? What was, or were you still like exploring at the time? You weren't sure, but you just knew you wanted to start something. Well, at that time, we were thinking, I mean, the psychology background really taught me something that it is that we need data and the fact of the matter is that uh, everybody is interested in health data i mean all the tech companies pharma research uh, everybody wants data and the only person who's really not interested in health data is the patient 
himself and uh, unless they become sick. But if you're healthy, you don't care about your health data. And so there's a really big difference between what the market needs and uh, where it gets the data from. That means that very often the data of the people gets used, even if it's anonymized, without their consent. But the data creator is never part of the monetization of the data. And we see that, uh, or we saw that, uh, also in the NHS, when there was a big scandal that Google was using the data in the hospital systems without the, asking the people. And this is just one case, but it happens all the time. So at that time, we thought, how can we uh, motivate people to get interested in their data? And the way was, okay, we have to give the health data a value. And by tokenizing it, uh, we can give the health data value. And that was the whole starting idea uh, that we had that when people share their data, they should immediately receive payment in the form of tokens when they share the data. Instead of forcing them to share the data, we thought that's a much more friendlier way of uh, helping those who need the data to get the data. And they're really willing to pay for the data. I mean, the researchers are nowadays to spend a lot of time and money uh, to to get the data i mean paying researchers uh, that's very quite expensive and they have to call the people and we thought uh, by just paying the people we can help those who need the data easier access to the data because also the lack of participation is number one reason why clinical studies fail and we thought that Paying people, uh, first of all, increases the likelihood that people accept being participating in research and also they stay on longer uh, when they get paid. And we know from a lot of psychological research, also from compliance, uh, when you should show a certain behavior that paying people helps. I mean, this is also why they are now discussing that uh, around the whole vaccine uh, issue and COVID-19 that uh, if we should pay people for getting the shot. And I mean, it's a well-known fact uh, that this shapes behavior if you pay them. And that was really uh, where we started. We thought that give a platform uh, to those who are seeking the data and those who can provide the data where they can match uh, in and using blockchain to protect the privacy of the individual users and also give them the opportunity to have an instant payment with the tokens. But that model, we're still doing that. And one use case uh, where people with a rare disease, they report the progress of the treatment on a regular basis and they get tokens, which they then can use to redeem um, certain health services. But over the years, we're kind of moved away from that as the single use case of the foundation. I think we're talking about that later on also. Sure. Yeah. And, and just to kind of keep on that topic, you were talking about health data. Is there any health data that's out of the scope or is this still like anything is included? Is it genetics information? You mentioned rare disease. Is this for clinical trials or is it for anyone who's starting to take, has been prescribed a medicine? Like well, first of all, I think it's important to understand from just by looking at how blockchain works, it's immutable, uh, you cannot change or delete anything. 
that also is a big conflict with data privacy. That means if you look at GDPR, then the right to be forgotten that cannot be executed on blockchain. So it's really important to understand that you shouldn't store any personal identifiable information on blockchain at all. So there will never be a record, medical record on blockchain because it just doesn't make sense to have such a big volume of data on the blockchain and recopy it on like hundreds or thousands of nodes. And also from a data privacy point of view, uh, that's just a no-go. And what you can really do is you can have identity and access management to data that's being stored off-chain that you can execute through blockchain. So I think this is really important as a background information around the whole blockchain and healthcare issue. But to answer your question, what is really uh, the kind of data that is interesting in general for research and so on, it's certainly the most valuable data set that we're looking at and where organizations are really willing to pay for it is not genetic data. Although, I mean, from a personal point of view, that's potentially the most valuable data that you can ever give to somebody because if somebody has your DNA data, they basically know a lot of things about you. But uh, if you ever try to sell your DNA data, you have a hard time selling it. I met this one French journalist, the height of the ICO stuff. He was looking for a blockchain company that's basically was trying to uh, tokenize DNA information and he did that and then he got tokens and he said at the end of his presentation, the tokens that he got now is worth like 10 cents. So that's basically always the data that we're looking at who is willing to pay for the data. That's like artwork. I mean, the artwork you're looking at is only worth as much as somebody is willing to pay for it. And so what's the kind of data somebody uh, is willing to pay for? And that's really the real world evidence. That's data, for example, that you report along a treatment. And the more expensive a treatment is, then the more valuable the data is because each patient is worth a lot or each treatment. And we are looking, especially also in the US and the Western uh, European countries, we're looking at the future of so-called value-based healthcare. That's really, uh, when you look at it, that's outcome-based reimbursement. And that means that in the future, expensive treatments get only paid by the payer that can be an insurance or the state. If the treatment provider, that can be the hospital, uh, medical centers, but that's of course also like medtech companies providing parts of uh, the treatment and pharma companies, and they only get paid if the treatment works, or you get partially paid if it works to some extent, but not so really great. And uh, this happens, that model really is introduced in a lot of very expensive drugs. I mean, one of the earliest examples was Kimria, which is a very expensive personalized drug. And the only way they got, ex they got the acceptance in the US that the insurers paid is that 
they read that uh, if it doesn't work, nobody pays for it. But it, if it works, they pay for it. And in order to judge uh, if something has worked, you need that kind of data. That's already very established uh, in the US yeah. that you need to prove uh, that your treatment works. And you prove that by collecting data. So that's why the, the digitization around treatments has uh, really taken off uh, in the US in the last decade because uh, you need to collect the data along the line, uh, which sure. you then use to get uh, the reimbursement for the treatment. And that's sure. really the most valuable data set that we are looking at right now. And that's also the case in the rare disease projects that we're doing together with Roche. Right. And I think that makes sense because, you know, like you mentioned, if the the treatment is extremely valuable, the data to prove that it's valuable is also extremely valuable itself. Can you talk a little bit more about the partnership with Roach and specific project you're working on? Yeah, sure. Um, as I said, the original idea of us was exactly that uh, patients get paid uh, when they share the data. And by doing that, we increase the, the amount of data and also the quality of data that the partners are getting. And so this was the, the first contact that we had uh, with Roche that was back in 2019. And they were basically traveling in the, the Crypto Valley uh, and uh, having a, like an international team educating themselves around uh, blockchain in general, not so much about how it can be applied in healthcare because at that time they were not really expecting that somebody could present them a workable solution. And I was asked uh, by the Crypto Valley, Crypto Valley Labs guys to take to teach one of those groups at Roche. And so just in that day, we came to the conclusion that, I mean, that really fits their need, what we're doing in, they get their hands on uh, valuable data. And so we started projects in an Eastern European country with them, uh, where at that time they just released Hemlibra, which is a next generation hemophilia drug that was basically the uh, the target group that we are we're building the, the use case on it and so we're extending that now to different indications and also to other uh, countries and we also have other companies who heard of it and now get interested in that but then that was the end of 2019 and you all know that in between something happened and uh that also asked to shift of strategy just from doing exactly what I just described, having that one uh, application, the incentivization part of sharing health data. And then we were bombarded from different sites. Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do vaccine tracking? And I said, yes, we can, because we already had one research project together with the Swiss Tropical and Public Health Institute where we track rabies vaccines in Western Africa. So they asked us, can you track uh, also in the future uh, COVID vaccines? And I said, yeah, that's a very good case for, uh, for blockchain. And then um, one other pharma company, a very big one, came to us. Can you develop an early detection tracing system for COVID because at that time we were already talking with them about an early detection system for malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. I said, yes, we can do that. And so all of a sudden through the pandemic, we were 
really uh, confronted with a lot of different opportunities. And then we had to decide focus on what we're doing or open the whole thing. And uh, we decided to open uh, our scope. And that also means that or meant that at that time that we focus more on infrastructure and, and helping others to build their applications on top of that infrastructure uh, instead of doing everything ourselves. And then uh, we had to decide why should a healthcare stakeholder build on our blockchain and not on somebody else's blockchain because there are mm -hmm. a lot of different great protocols out there uh, which you can use for basically any purpose. Why should someone who wants to build a healthcare use case come to us? And, and just for just to be um, clear on which blockchain protocol you use, I think Cardano is what you're currently using. Is that correct? And I believe uh, NEM was no, involved, but I'll, is that no? That's not correct. I mean, uh, we are first we built on NEM, the NIS1 system, the public blockchain of NEM. Um, and uh, then with the strategic shift, we decided that we need to be the first layer otherwise you're eaten by your success because if you have to pay transaction fees on another blockchain that's just killing each project and we see that in the DeFi space with the uh, Ethereum gas price right now so um, at that time then we decided we have to have network and the good thing around that time was that NEM was uh, I mean, they were talking for years at that time that they are going to release Catapult. And Catapult is the new protocol now known as Symbol, which went live mid-March this year. And you can basically take that protocol and build your own independent network of nodes and be a layer one network, a blockchain network with no dependency to the original symbol chain. So we did that. We took that and uh, set it up and released our own network on March 29th this year, just two weeks after uh, symbol uh, slash NEM uh, released their new protocol. Yeah, if anyone wants to learn more about NEM, I actually interviewed with Gregory, Gregory Save, and he's a NEM developer. It's episode 84, for those that are interested. Go ahead. Well, Greg, uh, it was in the past, he was the head of development at NEM, and uh, luckily, we were also able to recruit him um, beginning of this year, and he's now our blockchain lead. Uh, because, because he also contributed substantially to the protocol and he knows that in and out and all what we're developing now, of course, has, has to go into the original code uh, and also basically adapting the current protocol to the special healthcare needs. And I mean, we're using as a first layer, we're using the simple protocol, but as I said, it's totally independent. And it's great for transactions. I mean, for scaling and executing our transactions, if you think about supply chain management or tracking millions of vaccines or registering uh, vaccine passports on the chain, it's perfectly suited for that. 
But if you think about big use cases in healthcare in the future, that might be something around value-based healthcare, uh, which we just touched upon, that also leads to health insurance and uh, health credit systems. And there you need what's generally known as a smart contract. And uh, there's not really a smart contract capability in, in the protocol we're currently using. So we decided we have to have that feature in our platform because we want to deliver uh, the best possible solution for healthcare. So we need that. And then we decided uh, to go with Cardano because posing with Marlowe uh, is very suitable for contractual payments, for example. And this is the Cardano part of the of the DHealth network. It's not functional yet. We all know that we're all waiting for the smart contract capability of Cardano, but that's our bet right now. I mean, that doesn't mean that in the future we cannot integrate something that's being built or feature that's on other chain, because I think we are now kind of beyond the tribal um, tribal area of blockchain and that cross chain interoperability and transactions through bridges. That's the way to go in the future and that protocol hopping will be very common. So we have a part of Cardano, we have our own protocol that has its symbol slash NEM DNA, but we really want to help the community to make it for them as easy as possible to build their healthcare use cases on our platform. That's also why we have that ecosystem components like decentralized identity, uh, certificate services that we are constantly adding to the wallet in the form of plugins into the wallet. That's basically where we are right now. Yeah, I want to learn more about the decentralized identity service because that's been a big challenge. A lot of companies and organizations are trying to figure out. But before we talk about decentralized identity, I want to just ask, you mentioned how Ethereum has high fees for transactions at this point. Do you think when ETH2 and the beacon chain all of that becomes released will that help with you know your transaction fees would you consider using ethereum at that point when it's better built to scale i don't see a reason for doing that i mean we're using ethereum for the initial dex offering uh that we that's just upcoming uh by the end of september uh, but as a protocol, there's no reason for us to, to move to another protocol at, at this stage. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the future brings. Uh, it might be interesting to have uh, an Ethereum, Ethereum component uh, in the future, but there's really the how assets are managed. It's a total fundamental different way apart from proof of work versus proof of stake that on symbol or on uh, Cardano, you have a clear asset management, whereas on Ethereum, it's always each token is a contract. So that's a totally different uh, way of looking at it. But as I said, I mean, this is such a vibrant, uh, fast-paced environment. Technologies are developing. So I will not exclude anything at the current moment. And it's really uh, not about protocols, technology. In the end, if you really want to reach mass adoption and 
that's really what you want uh, to achieve in healthcare, then you shouldn't talk about on a protocol level. I mean, you should just look how the cases, the projects you're solving, the problem that they are solving, uh, what's the best way of approaching that? And uh, in many cases, blockchain technology, no matter which one has to offer uh, transparency and trust, uh, which the current healthcare system uh, is lacking uh, in many cases. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. So can you provide some of like the feedback your alpha and beta testers have shared with you while testing the platform? Or you know, at what stage has the platform been available for these users? I think we have to distinguish between two types of users. One is the user that's just having to deal with an application uh, that is blockchain-based. I mean, the rare disease patients, basically, they don't care that it's blockchain-based. I mean, very often, they don't even care about their privacy, where the blockchain part is very important to preserve their identity and privacy. They care about the payment. They certainly not, don't care about, uh, and that's what we learned, that you have to back up your mnemonic of your wallet. I mean, just think about a 75-year-old person having to back up their mnemonic. And then, I mean, that's just something that's killing the interaction with the patient. So really uh, what we're seeing there is the users that use the app, if they are confronted with blockchain, they don't like it because it brings some burdens with them that they are not used to. And so we try to hide as much as possible of the blockchain part and still using the advantages of the technology. And that's the first kind of user we're talking about. And then the second type of user we're talking is more the technology savvy people and the blockchain enthusiasts. And uh, the good thing about our, I would say, NEM DNA is that uh, we could also uh, attract some of their community. And what we did is we did an airdrop in May uh, on those who were actively harvesting. This is a kind of staking uh, to earn block rewards on the symbol network. And so we airdropped on every account that has harvested one block before block 200,000, a certain amount of digital health points. That's our native currency. And so um, what we're having now, we started on March 29th, we have close to 12,000 network accounts and we have uh, 63 network nodes of which a considerable number is run by community members and uh, more than 2,000 accounts that do staking and that's due to the acceptance and the interest of the NEM community also to do the staking slash harvesting on our network. So those people um, seem to be very satisfied and they have, of course, now high expectations on what we can actually deliver in terms of new projects, also in terms of... uh, token listing. I mean, they possess tokens, which at the current state are, or they're also earning tokens, which are at the current state have no external reference value. 
I mean, in the project so far, the value of the DHP, the digital health points, our tokens was predefined by the project. But now we're moving to the stage where uh, with the listing token has an external reference value. And this is uh, where that second part of the community has, of course, high interest in because they're motivated to stake on the, the network and also by doing that, securing the network. And also those who run the nodes uh, also have expectations. And so far, they've been quite satisfied. I mean, with the recent um, announcement that we do the, the initial DEX offering on a Cardano-based platform, uh, where the funny part is that we release an ERC-20 wrapped DHP at first, and then once the bridge to Cardano is ready, also uh, can be a, a Cardano-based DHP. But the token supply will never exceed 2 billion. So just as a side note, and um, yeah, I mean, so how does the we have DHP... a lot of expectations, and also they are questioning us now, coming from that tribal blockchain protocol attitude. Why do we switch to Cardano? And we say we're not switching; we're just using some of it. Why do we turn your back on them? <laughs> we don't turn our back on them. So we have to yeah. do a lot of explaining right now. But in the end, those kind of users are. Um, Overall, the majority is quite satisfied what we're doing. And as I said, they have high expectations what we can also deliver in terms of projects in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, token holders, especially large token holders, are always very demanding of their projects. So I can appreciate that. Um, I'm curious about the DHP or digital health points token and what its utility is now. So what I understand is if you provide some information or data about your health information you'll earn dhp is that correct and then where can a person use their dhp for services or what are the you know utility of it by classification of the finma which is the financial supervising authority here in switzerland it's a utility and payment token so it's a hybrid token with a strong uh, payment uh, part. So what can they use it for? I mean, the original model is that um, you receive it for sharing your data and then you can use the, the token to redeem uh, a predefined service. I mean, we also have a project with the National Lung Hospital in Vietnam, which well, is on hold currently due to COVID-19. But there the setup was that uh, they can use the tokens that they earn when they come back for uh, the regular cons consultancy and also provide uh, questionnaire data between those uh, regular consultations. Uh, they can use the tokens uh, to redeem certain services like uh, they can pay for an x-ray um, and so that that's the utility part of the token. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. As most of you know, demand for elderly care services continues to climb higher as each new generation lives longer than the previous ones. Because of COVID, many elderly people are opting to stay at home and receive care in their own homes when possible. 
One major challenge to providing care is having real-time data to track caregivers who need to travel to different patients' homes in order to provide that care. In a recent announcement published on the Helium blog, Narado Corporation has teamed up with Helium, also known as the People's Network, to enhance communications between at-home elderly care managers, seniors, and caregivers. Narado uniquely serves caregivers and other customers across industries by providing new cloud software that monitors the location of people and equipment indoors and outdoors. The precise location helps teams respond faster to client needs, detect issues before escalations are needed, reduce human error, and to inform better decisions. Narado solves this challenge by eradicating the need for a smartphone. Instead, as each caregiver completes their service, they tap a button on their ID badge to automatically log location details to the central cloud database using asset tracking technology from Abbeyway. Once in the cloud app, the data allows managers to monitor the current status of each client via a map visualization and view the live GPS location of each caregiver. To make all this possible, Narada needed a long-range IoT wireless network, and Helium fit the bill perfectly. As the fastest-growing wireless network, the People's Network enables cost efficiencies of only $1 per badge per year. Other benefits include increased time spent caring for seniors, enhanced communications to ensure no one is overlooked, improved scheduling for more efficient trips, and reduced stress for care managers. These benefits are further bolstered by the network itself, which offers long battery life for the ID badges, low costs, and ubiquitous coverage for limitless expansion. I'm bullish on the People's Network, and I think this partnership can be a great example for other location-dependent operations and IoT networks to be improved by the blockchain-powered, decentralized wireless infrastructure called Helium. I'll be watching this one very closely. Check out the show notes for a link to this announcement. And now back to the episode with Eberhard Scheuer, founder of the D-Health Network. Just to get like a, a sense of how much it's been used so far, do you have like a number, like how many times has a person used their DHP for a service? How many services has been acquired through DHP? Is that something that you can share? Well, it's, it's not that many. It's because, the, uh, as I said, the Vietnam project is on hold. We have a couple of hundred patients on there. And uh, the redemption part, uh, we can see that uh, some of them have ca uh, cashed in, uh, quotation mark, their mm -hmm. tokens uh, by just looking at the transactions. But this is really run by the people on the ground. And uh, the rare disease part, by definition, disease, it's a rare disease. That means also patients are rare. That's just uh, more than 100 patients using it right now. But it's picking up. So that's the use cases that we are continuing with the partners. But now with the whole uh, move to the infrastructure layer, uh, we're looking at a whole different application of the token. Right now, it is very important to uh, stake your tokens in order to earn block rewards. And so there it's used heavily. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, really now a very interesting time where we have this conversation because uh, we are all curious when the token hits the market, which direction it will go. And uh, this is also an indication how valuable 
that kind of platform is being looked at by the community, not just the crypto community, and all, but also the tech community, which is very conservative, as you know. But we have sure. uh, people who are now that we are making progress towards the listing, uh, show a huge interest in acquiring the tokens and also what they can do with the tokens uh, in the future and uh, potentially talk, don't reveal too much, but um, the whole issue of the settlement of payments in healthcare is something where a lot of players look onto it because it can streamline payment processes in healthcare on a national level uh, and also on a global level very much. It can also conditional payments, for example, if you ship uh, vaccines to a country where you know you have to wait usually six months for getting paid, you can make that a conditional payment once it, uh, it enters port it's scanned then a certain number of tokens is released and uh, the whole issue of uh, payment procurement that's one of the major application use cases in the near future for blockchain and healthcare yeah and i think one issue that's still being figured out and this is like a very like you said vibrant diverse it's changing all the time so it's hard to really say one thing will work or won't work so it's all sort of an experiment but one thing I just wanted to mention was the fact that you're in Switzerland. And I think like being in Switzerland creates an interesting dynamic for you as well, because you have certain rules and laws there that might be more friendly towards crypto and blockchain. Do you agree? Like what are some of the pros and cons for operating in Switzerland? Well, first of all, by coincidence that uh, I live in Switzerland, although being German, uh, so that kind of helps uh, establishing a blockchain company in Switzerland. But overall, you're right. I mean, the so-called Crypto Valley and was certainly named because as a counterpoint of uh, the Silicon Valley and the more centralized uh, IT world, so the Crypto Valley, when it started, uh, still has um, quite a powerful impact on regulations. And uh, in Switzerland, Switzerland is a small country, and you might know that there's something called direct democracy. Uh, you can always debate how direct it really is, but the ways to the politicians and uh, lawmakers are quite short. And uh, contrary to larger countries, they even listen to you. So I think people who got involved in crypto early on, they did a very good job and explaining what such a small country as Switzerland can do in order to position themselves in the global market of attracting talents and companies uh, in order to attract a lot of uh, crypto companies by uh, forming the regulation in a way that it makes it feasible to execute crypto-based business. And uh, but we also see that, uh, like everywhere where in the world, uh, regulations are tightening up. So on one hand, that's really a good thing, because if you know the regulations and you can rely on them, you can form your uh, activities in a way that you're not violating the law. And that also uh, means that to the outside world, if somebody uh, manages to operate crypto in Switzerland, more or less has a high uh, uh, likelihood that it's uh, not a scam. So uh, because 
you set up as a foundation uh, because that was at that time the typical Swiss way of uh, doing uh, releasing uh, digital money. I mean, we see Ethereum uh, was still a foundation here in Zug. Cardano was a foundation in Zug. We are a foundation in Zug. I mean, that's the typical way traditionally how you how you got managed to to release or to mint money without violating the law. Because we all know that. Uh, other states are not that flexible when it comes to violating their right of being the sole creator of, of money. Right. And uh, yeah, but um, uh, there's certainly other jurisdictions around the world where you can do the same um, and you don't really need to do it in Switzerland anymore. But still, since the regulations are quite favorable, uh, it's um, it's a good place uh, to be, and the newest thing instead of foundations is doing associations. But in the end, uh, doesn't matter which legal entity or you're choosing to, to found. I mean, the people are in the end liable for, by what they're doing, and that's something a lot of people are forgetting. Uh, and I personally have never expected uh, to spend so much time talking to lawyers. I certainly uh, have acquired myself over the last four years uh, some profound knowledge around crypto regulations. Although, uh, to be honest, that's I never thrived for that. So, yeah, <laughs> no, that's true. I think lawyers are seeing a newfound um, like opportunities here with crypto and blockchain. You know, in terms of privacy laws, financial laws, social laws. I think it's quite interesting. So I think that's going to continue to grow as, as more as much uh, as more like devices go online and that need for security and lawyers become more popular. Um, one thing I mentioned in the intro that we didn't really get into yet is this new project with the ESOT uh, with the Oregon Transplantation Exchange. Can you talk about that and what, what you're intending to do there? Well, first of all, the ESOT, that was just the, the, that's the European Society for Organ Transplantation. And they had a, just recently, last weekend, a, a conference, the biannual conference. Uh, and that's where that new partnership got announced. The partnership is really between the Organ X Association, which is also based in Switzerland, but they have a global scope in advancing um, the organ exchange on a global level. And the first uh, organ that they're approaching is um, uh, kidney transplantation. And uh, the third partner um, is the Paris Transplant Group. Um, which is uh, well known for having developed um, algorithms to improve the matching of, um, of the organs that are harvested uh, either on living donors or on cadaver, cadaveric donors uh, with those who are uh, receiving the organs. And if you improve that, you can save a lot of lives or certainly improve the quality of life for a lot of people around the globe and uh, even prolong their life and 
I mean, this is an ongoing process and the algorithm, of course, is improving all the time. But it has been uh, accepted as uh, one of a very good method of improving uh, the matching of the organs and the donors. And what, the, I mean, we've been approached by them if we want to play the blockchain part. And uh, although I've been working as a, um, when I was still doing clinical work um, and doing research, I had a large um, um, project with the National Science Foundation here in Switzerland around um, the quality of life in transplant patients. So I was actually a psychologist, working as a, as a psychologist in the transplant team, especially judging uh, the psychological state of the organ recipients. And so I had some uh, previous knowledge around the whole processes involved in the organ transplantation. So that was just a lucky coincidence that they approached us for uh, the blockchain part of the whole uh, of the whole platform. And um, people were talking about that for for many years. And when I was uh, uh, heading a jury in Germany around innovation around blockchain by the Ministry of Health, certainly uh, 10% of all the submitted projects were around uh, organ registry and blockchain. And really um, it's not fully um, defined what we can use the blockchain in that context, but it's certainly uh, used for uh, transparency reasons, um, because we all know um, we have always the fear of uh, if we agree to donate organs, we never, uh, if we end up in the emergency room, we never go, know what's happening to us. Uh, so transparency around the whole process is very um, important and trust. So that's something blockchain can provide. And also the global uh, accessibility and interoperability by the different um, organizations that participate in the platform. I mean, if you're using uh, blockchain uh, infrastructure, that means that this is already running infrastructure. You don't have to care about deep integration into existing systems. So I think this is the big advantage we're looking at here now. And I mean, I was quite surprised when they mentioned to us, if we look at organ transplantation and allocation uh, on a global scale, we have a lot of payment issues around that. And for example, I mean, uh, who's paying the team in different countries? Uh, which insurance is paying? Is it the paying the insurance of the recipient and, or in the case of life donation, uh, living donation, is, is it paying, uh, is the insurance of the donor paying? So there's a lot of payment processes involved, which we can ease and streamline uh, with the blockchain part we already talked about, uh, settlement of payments, digital contracts, uh, transparency of digital contracts. So this is the whole partnership we are looking at and we're just starting it right now. And OrganX is also one of our partners uh, running a node uh, of the platform. So this is good also that they're involved and providing credibility and trust to our network. Yeah, I think that's great that they are running 
a node that makes, um, you know, they have some skin in the game. And I, I was curious about your experience working with patients that have received transplants. I, I can imagine that these people are living, you know, very difficult lives waiting for a donor. Um, and then once they get it, it's, it's like they have a new lease on life. It's, it's a very life-changing kind of event for them. Uh, yeah. Can, can you share some, just a story? I'm just very curious about like what, how that's impacted you as someone in healthcare, seeing those kind of patients. Uh, well, we're here, we're leaving the, the area of digital health for the moment. But I mean, for me, uh, as I said, a psychologist coming from research and then being confronted through a research project uh, with those patients uh, in real life. And also I had to take over a, a certain responsibility in the whole process of onboarding those people on the waiting list. And this was basically my part, uh, most of my part in the whole process, interviewing those patients before they uh, come on the waiting list. Because uh, at that time, um, they have reached a certain degree of the disease that makes it necessary to, or, uh, for giving them a new organ. Uh, where they're very sick. Uh, and that really, in most cases, it really shows. And the most um, uh, impacting cases are always children. Uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if you're faced with children that uh, have that kind of story uh, behind, I mean, typically uh, cystic fibrosis, uh, well, in the case of lung transplantation, was the most uh, difficult experience, I would say, because early on they are uh, burdened by that disease that uh, and they have to receive an, uh, an organ very desperately otherwise you die and um, then you sit there um, yeah I mean it's um, questioning them how fit they are uh, in terms of um, mentally fit um, and because what you don't want, I mean, that's the worst case uh, if you lose an organ. And there are many different ways of losing organs. I mean, by, uh, by just uh, the transport, something goes wrong in the transport, or the, the person who's receiving the organ dies in the, in the surgery. Uh, but there's also something uh, called uh, suicide. I mean, that's uh, not very uncommon. And why is that? Uh, it's not that people are getting so depressed under their um, under their um, uh, health condition, but if they, after the donation, uh, they have to take a lot of different medication, and one type of medication that they have to take is immunosuppressants, and uh, part of the immunosuppressants that they're taking. Um, are corticosteroids, which means that they're more agitated and uh, that also not in, not often, but in some cases it, it comes, uh, it just uh, increases the likelihood of a suicide. And this was a very essential part of the, uh, the questioning, uh, can we take this person at the current stage on the, the waiting list because if they get transplanted, receiving that kind of medication, what's going to happen with them? So uh, sometimes you had to decide, okay, you probably have to go uh, for therapy first. Uh, and then uh, once you do that, we take you on the waiting list. 
But usually, I mean, in most cases, to be honest, it was an easy decision to uh, to put those people on the waiting list because, as you said, for them, that's such a life-altering uh, experience to be able to be active again, participate in everyday life. Uh, so my part was just to, to look at uh, some of the potential threats to the patients and to the whole process around that. Wow, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Very interesting. And I do hope that this new project and partnership might um, increase that transparency and trust, giving hope to more patients out there. So um, thank you for doing that. Um, so yeah, I'd like to know if there's any additional things that you'd like to share before I get into some personal questions. Like maybe you can talk about the outlook for the rest of this year and, and beyond for D-Health. Well, right now, um... The most pressing issue for us is the initial DEX offering that we're looking at. Uh, we have to <clears throat> prepare everything, also to implementing the bridge between uh, our network and um, uh, Ethereum. So there's a lot of things to prepare for that, uh, the public sale. And uh, that's, if we look beyond like the financial part or in the funding part of the whole project, we look at the uh, technical challenges that we are trying to solve. It's the components, the technical components that we want to offer this year. Uh, certainly um, uh, the uh, integrating um, digital contract part, also integrating um, uh, patient control data repositories and also like the certificate service into the wallet and potentially the most user-friendly um, uh, change or improvement that we're looking for 2021 is the release of our mobile wallet. Right now we're doing all the um, improvements on um, desktop wallet and but we all know, especially Asia, uh, the world is mobile. So mm -hmm. if you don't exist as a mobile app, uh, you don't exist. So that's really something we have to uh, release uh, in the Q4 2021. And of course, always eager for new partners. There are some new partners in the pipeline, uh, two top 20 pharma companies in the pipeline. So we, for running the nodes, uh, so we have to set them up. And if we what does it take to, what does it take to run a node? Like what are some of the high level requirements? Is it, you know, a lot required? Technically? No, I mean, if you run the community node, which is essentially on a technical level, not different from a super node, uh, you just uh, need some cloud space. And you need to run the protocol that we're pro providing to everybody who wants to run a node. If you want to be in the class of a super node, um, you have to uh, donate some money to the foundation. Uh, and in return, you get uh, technical support. You also get a certain um, level of uh, harvesting that's being done on your node. But it's more. more the, the teaching and helping them to implement their projects. That's what they're getting. Mm -hmm. And, but on a technical level, it's not different. Um, 
But as the supernode operator, you have to guarantee, and that's the part of the contract, um, you have to guarantee a certain technical infrastructure because if we want to have a certain throughput on the network, then we have to have um, nodes uh, as a backbone. And that's the super nodes we're talking about that really can execute. And uh, we have a block time of 30 seconds with potentially 4,000 transactions being included with each block. Uh, even more if we look at aggregated transactions, then um, they have to have a, a solid machine to run that. And that's part of the requirements. And they also have, through that being a super node partner, some saying uh, on in the, like in a democratic um, process, what kind of technology changes, for example, in, in the context of a fork, uh, are they, they can implement or not. So it's really, on a technical level, it's not much different. It's just what they're getting by running a super node and on the other hand, what the duties are to run a super node. Understood. Um, so getting into some personal questions here, what would you say is an influential book that you've read that maybe you would recommend to others? Uh, to be honest, uh, I stopped reading. That really sounds bad now, but I stopped <laughs> reading books some time ago. Uh, but I'm a total addict of uh, books on tape in the past, which is a bad habit that I acquired while being in the US uh, <laughs> as a student. And now I'm a total audible uh, addict. I hear uh, um, books. Uh, you listen to them. Actually, a lot of books. But if you ask me about the most influential book I read, uh, I mean, uh, that's potentially or listen to right when i was younger i mean this certainly what made a big impact on me was uh 100 years of solitude by gabriel garcia marcus just the uh the magical realism that he how he describes reality and uh destiny that really impressed me quite a lot and uh that's uh maybe surprising to you when I was young I was also writing a novel myself and that was kind of uh, influenced by that writing style I mean luckily Did you finish the book? unfortunately the, the publisher uh, it was uh, a novel and it was around um, uh, Gregor Mendel uh, and his gene uh, genetic mm. experiments and uh, the, the publisher went bankrupt right after they published my book and I always claim it was not my fault, uh, but you never know. So that was just uh, something I did when I was younger. And so I was very influenced by, by that type of book. But just recently, I, I have to admit, I, I've read a paper book recently. I mean, recently, that's a couple of years ago, that was the... Um, uh, how you say it in, uh, in English, the, the Ascent of Money by Niall Ferguson. I mean, uh, so that's really opened my eyes a lot of on a lot of economic things and that also shaped my, uh, my view on money. And if you look into the blockchain space, of course, we're talking about digital money. And that book really gives a lot of reasons why we should move to digital money and that any other state bank released or controlled 
currency is just as vulnerable to things that uh, the states claim digital money is vulnerable to. So um, I think that was also one of the more influential books and, that I read in the past. For sure. that That's a good recommendation, I think, The Ascent of Money. Another question here. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it implanted? Well, it depends what the microchip is supposed to do. I mean, if it uh, would help to increase my eyesight, of course, I would like to have it implanted close to the to the eye. If it should help me in the future, and that's something people would talk about, to increase my memory, memory capability, of course, close to the brain. Or uh, if we're talking about... Uh, alleviating uh, paralysis then should be there where the signal is broken so you'd be comfortable referring more to like the microchips that someone gets implanted uh, to exert the control of the state uh, giving access control then i would prefer it to have it somewhere where, where i can cut it out easily so maybe your fingertip i mean if you had to cut off your fingertip uh, I've damaged my fingers in the past couple of times just by being stupid or playing stupid games. So I that always hurt quite a lot. So I would prefer a part of the body where the density of nerves is not so high. So maybe yeah. the uh, the back of your hand or something like that, or the sh- your shoulder or your or your butt, something. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, and the, and the question is pretty general, so that's a fair answer. Um, how do you like to stay active and fit? Like what is some of the preferred exercises that you like to do in general? For this being a health podcast as well, I think it's important for people to stay active in some way, especially during the COVID pandemic, it's been more difficult to. Yeah, I mean, um, I surpassed the age where it's important for me to to build up a lot of muscles to show that I'm fit so I moved from pumping iron a long time ago to doing more the uh, duration sports like uh, running. And so, and to be honest, um, running really helps you thinking. And there's also a physiological basis to that. And I experience that every time I run that uh, I don't hear music. I just enjoy uh, the nature when I run and uh, the silence and that really when I come back very often I have uh, some good ideas how a problem can be solved and um, that's how I stay healthy. I, I also do, do sailing. I went sailing this summer in Greece and uh, that was also quite a physical challenge because there was just so much wind that it was not very enjoyable uh, to to sail, so it was rather a, a challenge to sail with that wind. And you had to, I mean, maneuver. Uh, we were in Greece, out of Athens. You had those huge uh, container ships, and you had th- three meters of waves and thirty knots of wind, and then you had to uh, sail around them. So that's kind of the challenges that I uh, that I can put uh swear but uh that helps you to stay active and fit for sure well everhard i think this was a really great conversation i do appreciate you joining me and having these talks i think it's important for people to understand what kinds of projects are out there Um, i do wish you the best of luck with d health i think you got some pretty good projects in the pipeline so 
Um, you got a lot of work ahead of you, which is great. It's a, it's a good problem to have. Um, is there anything else you want to share with the audience before we end here? No, just one thing I would like to say or to share is that what you already mentioned right now is a good time for blockchain healthcare. It's really a window of opportunity. And I think uh, people are open now after all that pandemic. Uh, they know that digital health is important in improving healthcare for all. And blockchain can certainly play a part in that whole challenge awesome thank you thank you hey all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to health unchained on stitcher soundcloud google play and itunes join the health unchained community on our telegram group t.me slash health unchained If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.